Welcome to Buffeting, the podcast with my wife Cass Ew. and I share our conversations on investing with you as we try to keep compounding capital so I don't have to go back to being a carpenter. And I don't have to go back working with real estate agents. <laughs> we hope you find it informative and entertaining. But we are not your financial advisors and nothing we say should take as investment advice. As always, do your own research, which is more fun. And now without further ado, on to the episode. People don't realize that in investing, that if you don't make any money for two years, you might be doing something bad, you might be doing something good, or nothing might be happening. And you also got to think like, okay, if Buffett was a 20 or a 30 year old yeah. in this environment, would he just be buying Coke? That's the only problem with actual it maybe, huh? Yeah, at least Bitcoin can't die. <laughs> Everyone we've listened to in the investing world, it's been so helpful to hear their approach and how yeah. they invest and how they structure their portfolios. For sure. Every time I hear an interview with someone explaining their process and the way they think, it's like always beneficial, even if I disagree with it, because it gives you a new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess this is our, our go at that for ourselves, hey love? Yeah. Hopefully we've got some good content. Yeah. Some interesting ideas that might, you know, assist other people and what they choose to learn about yeah. as an investor. Because really, the world is your oyster. Like, you can learn about and invest in anything. Your scope is just so massive. Yeah. So, sometimes it's like you've got too much to choose from. There's too much going on. And it's like, what is everyone else thinking about at the moment? What's your yeah. blind spot? What's helpful for you to spend your time doing? And investing is such a strange job and such a strange um, pursuit because most of the time, the right thing to do is not actually take any action. It's just to hold on to what you've yeah, already got. That. You know, it's It kind of only... fits with like if you're a little bit of a lazy person sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, look, I really yeah. shouldn't be doing anything. That's the best thing to do right now. <laughs> yeah. There's this great investor that I think most value investors know called um, Monish Prabhrai. Um, and he has said, like, I've heard him say this multiple times, that he thinks that the ideal lifestyle for an investor is basically like a gentleman of leisure. Is that... A, a gentleman of leisure, whatever the hell that is. This is Monish who has like a little room in his house, a little dungeon room where he just yeah. goes and sleeps for half the day. Yes. <laughs> yes. The guy's like worth like a couple of hundred million dollars and he showed once in his office his little um, sleep room and it looks like somewhere you keep a slave. <laughs> it's so It's so small. Oh. Look, let's not think about that any further. You don't no. know what's going on there. I don't know. Look, it's up <laughs> no, to but him. It's funny though, isn't it? Because it's like, um, now that I know what an investor is and now that we've been doing it full time for, well, I've only been doing it for six months and you've been doing it for seven years. Yeah, yeah. But I just, now that I fully understand what it is to be an investor, I'm kind of like, why isn't everybody doing this? Because it's so fascinating. Like you can, you can spend your day really just learning and it's going to yeah. be helpful. And we choose to do it at the moment in the stock market. Um, we would certainly invest in anything that seemed like it was going to produce a safe return. Um, the reason why the stock market, um, it's a hard competitive beat in terms of time and effort mm-hmm. and money to spend your investing um, capital on is because it's just so easy to get in and out of. And so easy to get your money back if something happens. Yeah. So there's no other, you know, investment or asset. For example, if if you let's say you 
you know, there's a cafe near you that's running really well and you really like the people and everything. And let's say you want to, you know, you've got a bit of money and you want to invest in that business. Like, well, that is, <laughs> that's the definition of illiquid. Like if you buy 25% of your local cafe, you know, if you want to get out of that, you've got to either sell it back to the owner or sell it to somebody else. But in the stock market, you've got infinite um, opportunities to sell onto anybody else. But Because it's so public. Exactly, because it's so liquid. But, you know, Warren Buffett said that that is the investor's main advantage, which is turned into its biggest disadvantage. You know, like most investors turn that advantage yeah. they have into its biggest disadvantage by, by because you can see the prices moving every day. Mm-hmm. You think that you should do something. You know, you should sell. You should get in and out. You know, you know, it'd be that's the way to make money. But you know, for the last six months, we've only done two, two transactions, <laughs> two transactions, <laughs> and and they were small. They were only yeah. they weren't actually investments. You know, so we were quite active last year. But that's the philosophy of the best investors as far as i can understand it it's simply to wait until the best opportunities and then swing and swing hard but i guess that's probably why as well that we want to come out and talk publicly about how we invest um, and talk with other people who maybe are just getting started or maybe they're like a they've also been going for years like you yeah and um you can kind of there's this trend happening at the moment mm. with like YouTubers and what is it called? FitTwit and yeah, FinTwit. All the rest of it. And and there's better and better and worse versions of it. Hey, love, like from what we've seen, there's there's some people who we think are you know they keep the information simple, but the information's good and accurate and helpful to people. Yeah. And they're and they're simply um, trying to communicate these great lessons from the best investors, and that's really good. That's and amazing. Then, and yeah. then you've got the other side of things which is people who, like, they've made a bit of money by luck and they're then going out and they're trying speculating. to... speculating. And they yeah. don't even understand, really, the fundamentals of what they're doing. And it's like, it's almost, it's frustrating, but it's also heartbreaking because it's people yeah. who are, like, putting their money in the stock market um, who haven't done any learning about what it is. You know, they don't even see a stock for what it is, which is a piece of a business. They don't see it like that. They see it as almost like this lottery ticket. Yeah. Um, or it's very much a casino, isn't it? Where they're just looking at graphs and prices and it's like, we bought at this point and we think it's going to go up or down. I mean, that's not that's not investing. No. Like you might make a little bit of money in the short term, um, but you're going to have made it by luck and you're not going to be able to stay with it your whole life, which is how you actually change your life. So the only way to do really well in investing is to keep doing it your whole life and to actually accumulate and to move forwards and understand what you're doing and the only way Get I do back that to basics the only way I do that is to actually understand what you own a share is a part ownership of a business if you buy 25% or a quarter of your local cafe then you own one of the four shares of the cafe it's as simple as that and you'll be getting your return from the future cash flow that that yeah. business is creating yep and it's no different when you buy a stock in the stock market. You are just simply saying, I'm a part owner of this business. Mm-hmm. And whatever this business does is part of my returns. Yeah. So it's kind of getting back to like Buffett Munger principles that I think people just aren't even aware of at this yeah. point. All the retail investors just jumping on board at the moment. It just seems like they're all talking this talk about bitcoin and crypto and 
all these trends and no one actually understands the fundamentals of what they're talking about. No one, no one, no one is actually um, understanding yet. Yet is the key word because the thing about the stock market through history is you get these periods where you go, you might go for 10 years where your average person, no one is interested in the stock market. You can't even, you can't even keep a conversation going about the stock market. Like, is that bizarre for you? It because is bizarre. you spent like a decade learning oh when no, you brought up investing and it just was like everyone was, uh, yeah, what next topic? Like no one wanted no one's to talk interested. about it. And now and now it really is like we've noticed a change. Eh? You've got people who you used to work for in, in the construction industry calling you up, asking you, hey, you know, do you think I should buy a Bitcoin? I mean, this is a bloody weird time it's really weird it's super it's super unusual and for someone who's heard about bitcoin or heard about making money and they've come into the market like you don't understand that no one understands that you're <laughs> you're i don't want to say sheep but it is kind of like sheep getting drawn into the slaughter like the, the, they're the last ones to come in yeah and as, as what they say the smart money is, is leaving but so yeah we well i think the main goal of our little podcast or interview, whatever we're doing, is just to communicate who we are, like how we think, and um, hopefully help people. Um, help people invest smarter and yeah. not be afraid to ask simple questions. Because I mean, even me coming into this, talking with you on a podcast about investing, this is just so far away from what I ever thought I'd yeah, be doing. Yeah, it's daunting, eh? And I'm still learning. Like, let's get that disclaimer out there. I've got my L plates on in investing, okay? Yeah. You used to work... You, you used to control all the money of a real estate with 20 people. So, you understand how business yeah, works. Yeah, look, I've got... That, that <clears throat> didn't really... It doesn't really prepare you for investing. Mm. Like, if, if anyone wants to actually do this as a job, like in a... What do you call that? With some intention. Yeah, in a professional you know, way. A long term <clears throat> way. Like you want to invest with your money yeah. and you want to think, you want to have this portfolio going for the rest of your life. This is yeah. your retirement plan. Yeah. You're taking control. Well, pick up some books, start reading, you know? Like we don't think we've got it all sorted out. We've had a couple of big successes and we've been able to compound money at around about 20% for seven years, which is a good start. Um, but the thing about investing is that the larger you get and the more success you have, the harder it becomes to keep finding ideas mm. because especially in this environment, I guess the question is what I mean when I say this environment. Well, the environment is what I call the macro backdrop of investing. So the first thing in investing that always kind of dictates it, Warren Buffett's call it the gravity that holds down all asset prices is interest rates. Mm -hmm. So we're in an environment right now well, when you put your money in the bank account, you'll get 1%. Inflation is going to be higher than that, which means things are going to go up at more than 1% a year and your actual money is only growing at 1% a year. So by putting money in the bank account and leaving it there, you're going to lose money every year with basically a certainty. Mm -hmm. Now, that fact alone is a hugely positive thing for stocks because stocks don't have interest rates printed on them you have to try and work out what the, the company is going to produce over the long term. Mm -hmm. And the higher the price you pay, basically the lower the return you're going to get unless the company grows a lot. So we're in an environment right now where a lot of people are seeing that. They're like, holy crap, I can only get 1% of my account. Let's buy these shares. 
These shares have been going up at 20, 30% a year. Bitcoin's been going up at 50% a year. You know, let's get involved, let's get involved, let's get involved. Mm-hmm. But those are the conditions for danger. You know, Warren Buffett, who's the world's greatest investor, said you should be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And when you've got people like we know, you know, tradies, people at parties, you know, asking you. I think you're, you might be giving people a little bit too much credit there as well because I think it's kind of like no one even understands percentage rates and returns. Uh, yeah, if, I know. If you really drill down to like the retail investors, they don't even know what how to value a stock. No, I know. Yeah. They don't know what it means to value a stock. They wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. I think the return percentage return they're going to get from it. Yeah. So our, our process, like the way we think about things, we treat the, the shares that we own, the companies that we own shares in exactly the same as we would treat it if we owned um, a quarter interest in the local cafe that we liked. You know, we treat it the same way. Yeah, it's we, real life. We, we look at it. It's we look, real business. We try and understand the product. We try and understand the customer. We try and understand the business itself and how safe or secure um, the assets of that business are mm-hmm. and then just roughly project conservatively, hopefully, how it's going to do over the next 10 years and that's how you work out what price to pay. But um, it's a very kind of like, it's a very slow process. It's a very boring process. It involves a lot of thinking. A lot of thinking. Yeah, a lot of talking. you need time to sit with your ideas and test your ideas. Sometimes you'll have like personal biases that skew your opinion on something and you've kind of, you got to train your brain to zoom out to like a, a larger perspective yeah. to see the whole picture. You know, you might think that this product that you personally use is a product that everybody uses. Therefore, even if the business is trading at a loss, you know, in the future, it's going to be a household brand. Yeah. So you've yeah. got this personal opinion there that just skews um, the decisions that you make. So you've always got to watch out for that. But I think the biggest takeaway of what I've learned so far to try and describe to someone what we do, mm. how we make an investment is kind of like, um, I really thought coming into it, it was all quantitative. Numbers. All numbers, right? Yep. You've got to understand cash flows and balance sheets and um, do like a financial interrogation of the business, which you do. And that is important to do. That yep. is important to do and to understand. How the business has been making money historically. Yeah, sure. What's their prospect for growth and try and put that all into to numbers. and Yeah. But predominantly what we do is qualitative. That literally is just like you try and drill down the quality of the business, mm. the story of the business, how it relates to its competitors in that industry. Yeah. What larger factors are at play could have an impact on it and its future um it's so fascinating Mm. and that's why i think if everyone understood the qualitative approach to investing then everyone would really be interested in doing it the proper way yeah because everyone's got something individual to bring to it as well yeah like whatever fascinates you and you would want to learn about for free like not as a job you just want to learn about it because you enjoy it you can monetize that by investing yeah. in that industry. Yeah, I think most people could understand, you know, like like you do now, hey love, like you understand what a balance sheet is, what a profit and loss is, what a cash flow is. Like these are the three 
yeah. financial statements. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I'm getting there. I find it difficult that it's just not a universal language between businesses. Yeah, I know. You know, I like know. Uh, all the line items should just have the exact same names. I know. You know, and if you're in an industry where they do something a little bit different, like, yeah, won't go into particulars, but yeah. then sure, have a different line item with a different name, but be descriptive for what that actually is. Yeah, you know, yeah. make it understandable. It's, it's kind of cryptic to me still sometimes. Yeah, yeah. The way they describe things. Yeah, I think most people, I think, I think you do understand, you know, where to look for the, the numbers, mm-hmm. but also the fact that I think a lot of people miss that all of the financial statements, so they're the, they're the facts of the business, right? So the balance sheet, it tells you what the company has in its assets. So what it has in cash, you know, what property it has, you know, what loans that it has, debt outstanding. Like all of these things are part of explaining, you know, how secure the business is. If the company has a lot of debt, then it's going to be much riskier because if you get any reduction in profit, then that debt's going to have to be paid back somehow and there's other ways that that can happen. But it's never, it's never good when that happens. So you've got those things and those are historical facts. Um, profit and loss, cash flow. Most most people who run a small business understand that profit and cash flow yeah, are two, are two different things. Yeah, I think most people get their heads around it. Yeah. That's that old saying, you know, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash flow is reality. And that exactly. applies to stocks too. It's the same kind of thing. Um, but... Adding to that, once you've kind of understood, okay, well, this business is a lot of debt. This business has no debt. You know, this business has huge profit margins. This business has no profit margins. You know, once you understand that, you have to make some projection about the future in terms of will that business be able to improve things or will it be able to defend itself against competitors? Mm-hmm. Like Warren Buffett uses this analogy of a moat. He says, what you want is an economic castle. You want to be in that castle and you'll be generating nice profits. But around that castle, you want a moat and you want to keep throwing alligators in there and you want to keep throwing sharks in there. And, you know, that's about protecting the ability of the business to generate profit. Yeah, that's the point of difference for your business and what protects it against competitors that they just can't copy or steal from you. And that's where it gets really interesting investing. It's not in looking at the numbers and then, you know, just, just, you know, another thing that I'm pulling out a lot of Buffett quotes today, but they're appropriate. He said that, you know, if if all the answers were in the history books, then the Forbes 500 would be librarians. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like you do get good information from history, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not everything. And that's where you've got to be interested in the world, interested in what's changing, interested in what's the same um, and kind of go from there. And then you've got to be patient enough to see if you're right or not. Well, that's right. That's the whole psychology part that comes into it, which is a massive factor. I mean, it's so complex, isn't it? So it's hard to just describe in 30 minutes what investing is. But um, back to your point of like looking at the balance sheet and thinking about its debt to asset ratio and all that sort of stuff. That's all important to get your head around and to understand. But sometimes if you critique by just those factors alone, then you miss out mm-hmm. on really good opportunities that might not fit into that mold that you framed for yourself that yeah. means a good business. It might sit outside of that mold, but there's a really big factor on the outside of its numbers that you're just not accounting for. 
And so if you just disregard businesses because their debt ratio is too high yeah. or they're not within the PE that you're looking for or you know, all these little numbers mm. can stop you from seeing bigger opportunities. So I guess, is it worthwhile explaining how we got to the point where we could retire a little bit? Like if I was, like when I, about four or five years ago, we sold a house and that meant we could use that money to try and invest in the stock market and try and compound that money. Um, we've done that and it's gone well, but it hasn't, it didn't go well from the start. And I actually had two years where I made no money at all mm. um, after I, after we'd sold our house. But what I was doing in that time, I wasn't doing anything wrong. That's actually normal. <laughs> That's not being people, people don't realize that in investing, that if you don't make any money for two years, you might be doing something bad. You might be doing something good or nothing might be happening that you're doing wrong at all. Mm. That's just the way it is. But I started out by screening companies. And what a screen is, is you set up specific financial criteria that you want to look for in companies. Sorry, I just need to say, I'm not snoring. This is my dog next to me going. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, continue. You used to screen. Yeah, yeah. I used to screen because I thought that would would be a good way to find find businesses that were of a high quality. And occasionally I did find a good things. Like I found LaVisa that way. You know, I found LaVisa by looking for certain metrics that generally like signify that a company is doing well. But the thing about all those financial metrics, they're all just a point in time. They're all just looking backwards and they're all a point in time. So what you do is you're, you're, by definition, you're going to miss out on all of the businesses that are evolving and changing. And what you really want is you want a business in three or four years that's going to have great financials. So you actually buy it before and then you can mm. you know, do it do it that way as opposed to trying to to go with the information that everyone already knows and i think that's probably the pushback we've seen lately with value investing right that that theme that's running through fintwit it's like value investing is dead Mm -hmm. and that's a boring way well okay if if you think of value investing in that way which is like you just screen for companies below a p of 10 and Mm. All these screens. Low, low book value, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then you you pull out a list of companies that fit that that metric, and you choose from that. Well, yeah, I can probably see how that kind of investing it's going to limit your range of possibilities. Especially in a world where, like, it, I've definitely seen some stuff that seems to um, signal that the pace of change is increasing. You know, because we're in a te- uh, an environment where technologies can be scaled really fast because they've got these massive players facebook and google that allow any business to advertise in a targeted way to a lot of people so you can get certain businesses grow really fast where that wasn't you know possible before yeah yeah so that that would be a you know a logical reason to push back against value investing but the thing is about that it's oh value investing is dead well surely you would think that like warren buffett is the you know most famous value investor he doesn't always buy companies of a p less than 10 but do you think that's a skewed way of looking at value investing as a description of what exactly. it is? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, exactly what I'm saying. Because yeah. it's not necessarily that, is it? No. Value, intelligent value investing is simply just buying a stock at a good price, a, a good value yeah. <laughs> for what you think its prospects are in the future. Yeah. It's not cigar butt investing. That's a different approach. That I wouldn't call that value investing. No. That's, um, that's budget, like discount invest i don't know what you liquidation call that, investing or something yeah it's yeah. not what i'm interested in because your scope is your ceiling is set it's a top down yep you've got this much cash flow for the future 
and it's going to dwindle, you know, year after year. And this is kind of your return cap. Yeah, you're buying a melting ice cube. Exactly. <laughs> is that who says that? I don't know. I heard that somewhere. I liked it. A melting ice cube. Yeah. And you can make money buying a melting ice cube if you pay a low enough price. Because what you're getting there is you're getting certainty of a mm. certain profit in mm. the past. And that is comforting to look at. It's comforting to look at and say, I've done that before too. I bought businesses that made a certain profit three years ago. And I've gone, well, they could make the profit again. They never do. <laughs> they never do. Because I'm anchoring on previous information as opposed to looking at the future. Look and at the how future. the business is evolving. Yeah. 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 That's so key. But, you know, like all things, it's, it all sounds very nonspecific. But it's governed mostly by principles now, isn't it? Less than, you know, a specific financial principles, metrics. Principles, that's right, yeah. Well, I guess it's when trying to describe how do we invest, I don't think we do fit into a box. You know, it's kind of you take on board the Dando investor. Of course. You know, that's a big consideration for us. You know, it's got to have a real capped downside. We're not risky investors. And that down... We're not speculators. Yeah, and that cap downside can actually come a lot of the time from, you know, even under the worst kind of circumstances, you know, if business is still going to grow at a good pace, then you're going to end up with a, you're going to end up paying a price that's so low, mm. even though they're not generating profit now, you're going to end up paying a price so low that you're, you're safe. So, yep. you know, security can come from all different places. But it's still a business with like good growth prospects. Sometimes, you know, you can find those opportunities. Yeah. And embrace that feeling. If you look at a company, this is one a good sign for me now. If I look at a company and think, geez, that's weird. Probably a lot of other people have looked at it and felt that it's weird too. Mm. And that's a place for more research. Because if you can find something before somebody else does and recognize the quality of a certain business earlier than anybody else, then that's your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always going to come from an area where you have your own interests and you have your own thinking and your own things that you do. Like um, something that we think that fits that bill is our marijuana investment, you know, mm-hmm. which is which is a pretty strange one. It's a big position. So we have our two biggest positions are Howard Hughes, um, which is basically like a property developer, 24% of the portfolio. Very secure, a lot of land, a lot of hard assets, a lot of buildings, a lot of, you know. And our second biggest position, which is about 14%, I think, is another company called Air Strategies. Well, now now, now, now rebranded as Air <laughs> Wellness, which is what they call a multi-state operator. So they own marijuana dispensaries and grow operations in multiple different states around America. Um, they're the fourth or the third largest in terms of revenue. And that's a business that everyone thinks, oh, marijuana you know yeah exactly dodginess it's, the it, bitcoin it like it brings up um discomfort for the majority of investors i would say that we've yeah. spoken to or we've listened to i think so it's kind of like uh everyone puts it in the basket of speculation like the same the same as crypto or yeah, nfts it's like these bizarre little pockets of the market but a certain perspective comes from like understanding the product uh-huh and uh, how it can improve people's lives, you know, exactly. the, um, the medical attributes of it. And also, I mean, it's hard to see how regulation is going to go backwards the other way from yeah. where it's come from, right? It's been kind of like a very slow, steady improvement in like the legal landscape. Mm-hmm. And to see that kind of 
backtrack or not even move any further from where it is. Mm. It just seems kind of impossible at this point. It, it'd be a massive change from what's happened historically. So the, yeah. the historical yeah. trend is towards legalization. The government in America is now um, positive on the plant. You know, there's a safe banking act, which we're not still not exactly sure what's going to happen, but it's definitely going to make it easier for marijuana businesses to deal with yeah. banks there's to have progress. banking there's services. There's progress happening. There's... People are getting more comfortable with the asset, with the business. You know, red tape is kind of coming off every year or so. Yep. More states have gone legal. Yep. Medically, adult use, you know, it's, it's progress. It's kind of amping up as well. Yeah. That it doesn't mean it has to continue to progress at such a rate mm-hmm. for it to work out as a good investment. And it also, it doesn't even need to be federally legal for it to work out as an investment. Yeah. Um, Air Wellness and a few other marijuana companies are kind a, a good return on yeah. capital businesses. And that's with like a whole heap of um, shackles tied to them. Yeah. So at the moment, they don't get to deduct their business expenses as tax deductions. Nope. They don't have access to capital. You know, they can't get a normal loan with normal interest rate. What the business... Um, so I'll give a little bit of history about the business. So their business originally started as a SPAC a couple of years ago. Um, they acquired a few different marijuana businesses. And what they've done since then is they've used the profit that's generated from that. Um, like these are profitable businesses uh, and you can understand why when you look at the structure of the industry. Even with all these shackles, it's Even still with all profitable. Shackles, still this profitable. is the key. Yeah. And they've been able to acquire businesses of scale, like $60 million, $100 million, other marijuana businesses that have built up localized monopolies in their state. And they've been able to acquire those for, say, you know, four times cash flow, you know, which is a pretty amazing yeah. price to pay considering the industry is growing at worst 20% per year. You know, consumption is, is increasing 20% per year. I mean, you show me a, an industry and a business where you can pay four times earnings for a business that's then going to grow their earnings by 20% per year. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing is is um, a sure thing, obviously, but through the virus shutdown, the businesses remain profitable. Um, it's considered an essential service. So basically, it has similar dynamics to alcohol, cigarettes, and food. It's an essential people people love yeah um you can almost treat it as a commodity in a way yeah yeah it's a commodity but it's also not a commodity that's the funny thing about it too a lot of people think that you know it's it's all the same but you know there's hundreds of different breeds and unlike alcohol which is going to make people feel pretty much the same whether they have you know four glasses of red wine or four glasses Mm -hmm. of of beer or four glasses of scotch you're going to feel pretty much the same when it comes to marijuana, different varieties will make you feel drastically different. So therefore, that's going to open up pricing power. That's going to open up brand power. and That's going to give certain businesses a moat for sure. For sure, for sure. And Air's at the forefront of creating like a dispensary experience You know, when you actually go and buy a product that's like very clean, very professional product that's made to a very high standard. High standard. And, and we get the sense of that through kind of um, they're a wholesaler to multiple cannabis brands. Yep. So they're, they're not only selling their own products. So that says something to their quality of flour. Well, the, the reason why I actually started mentioning that was that that's not a typical value investment at all. Like no. most people would, would, I mean, there's, I think it's, if you look at their current earnings, it's like 40 times earnings or something, times earnings maybe, 
which is a very expensive price to pay. Um, if you don't know what that means, 40 times earnings just mean that the price you're paying for the business is 40 times the profit. So if the profit was 1 million, you're paying $40 million for the business. In Air's case, the ratio is different, but you know that's what that ratio means, 40 times earnings. Which, which means, you know, if the business keeps earning one million of profit and you paid forty million dollars, you're not going to get a very good return. So growth is anticipated, mm-hmm. um, and that's where the opportunity is. Growth and also um, an easier environment to yeah. for your business to function. To function, yeah. I, I don't think you get any more difficult for them. It's only got to get easier. <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with a business that has to deal with cash. Yeah. You know, they can't take credit card payments. I mean. Just imagine trying to function in our day and age on a cash-only business. You know, all these things in the future mm. are going to get sorted out. Yeah. And also the complexity of the business. So, like, a lot of people have said that when finally it becomes federally legal, because at the moment in, in America, it's not federally legal. It's only legal in certain states, which means you can't transport marijuana across state borders, mm. um, which is a huge moat. If that was ever to change, there would be movement of marijuana from, you know, anyway, if there was oversupply somewhere, there'd be undersupply somewhere else. It, the, the pricing would equalize across the country. But it's already pretty equalized across the country. Like when, when we look at it, it's between 300 and 400 an ounce everywhere, basically. So it's already pretty similar. Um, and it, when that happens, you know, this might be five years away still. In the meantime, over the next five years, well, who else is going to be able to put the capital that Air's putting into buying these dispensaries and building these factories. And it's such a complex business that we think that eventually when it's legalized, then some a bigger player will come in and they'll buy out all these smaller companies. Probably. 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 It's hard with these like emerging markets, isn't it? It's kind of... Yeah. There's a few, few risks that you've got to always remain yourself open to. Yeah. Um, but not to the point where you don't take action when you see a good opportunity. And I, I feel like with a lot of investors, they're letting these gray areas kind of keep them out of the game a little bit. Yeah. Even when, when the fundamentals really stack up against any other value investing asset. Yeah. feels like a little bit of a, a blind spot for some people. But I yeah. mean, that's, that's me being an absolute amateur. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. and that's us, you know, having a shareholding. So we're obviously biased at this point. We we paid a lot less, and we've we've made good money out of it already. So that instantly biases you towards liking the investment even more. Yeah, of course. Um, and liking that, as well. that specific company. <laughs> yeah, they've got yeah. a great a great CEO. His name's John Sandelman, who's really, really good. Um, there's a lot of great interviews with him. Yeah. Explaining how he thinks about capital allocation. Explaining, you know. Yeah, he's a good operator. Works. Easy to listen to, doesn't talk bullshit. Yeah. But basically, yeah, if, if we're trying to explain to anyone listening who we are as investors, then yeah, definitely. It's it's Warren Buffett all the way down. But it's Warren Buffett applied in areas that we have a personal interest and in. we have um, understanding and um, get your head around the, the concept. And every person's different. Yeah. And you've also got to think like, okay, if Buffett was a 20 or a 30 year old yeah. in this environment, would he just be buying Coke? No, no, no. <laughs> you know he'd. I'd. I'd love to see what he'd be doing with yeah. like nimbleness. You know, not being tied down to such a massive market cap. Yeah. Uh, he'd be looking at other opportunities. 
yeah, don't, don't stick yourself into one box and follow what a few investors have done historically because no. you're going to miss opportunities that way. But also take a balanced approach. Like you don't need to get into these speculative positions where it could be a total loss of capital yeah. based on something happening that you can't even foretell the future for. You know, with, with Bitcoin, to buy an asset that could could potentially be banned by governments hmm. that you have absolutely no insight into, it just doesn't it doesn't yeah. sit with me. I prefer to just keep separate from it and miss out. That's fine. And I've talked to some some people. So we we first our first impression of Bitcoin was like, ah, bullshit, bubble, rubbish, wasn't it? That was our first kind of impression. Yeah. Maybe a year or two ago. And then... Oh, it's been that way for the 10 years it's been in existence. Yeah, every but... time it's come up, I've thought, oh, what a lot of rubbish. Yeah. But you know what? Anything's possible. <laughs> of course. And, you know, you've got such reputable people that we admire so much, like mm. Naval Ravikant, who is probably pro-Bitcoin, yeah. even though he's very vocal on its downsides yep. and sees the risks and is happy to talk about it. Um, that I like that balance, you know, in a person yeah. who's... But yeah, I mean, he's pro Bitcoin. So that probably that was a catalyst to me being like, okay, I need to just open my mind up to this a little bit. I'm being a little bit too yeah. skeptical here. Yeah, it's my understanding of it is that like any store of value, there seems to be a set amount of it. So anything where there's a set amount of it, whether that be seashells or whether that be, you know, <laughs> tulips. Tulips, or whether there's that, no set yeah, amount right. though, is that you can grow, <clears throat> grow until, as much tulips until, as you want until they all die. Maybe that's the only problem with that tulip mania, huh? Yeah, at least Bitcoin can't die. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's definitely possible, and it has seems to be able to transfer it easily, and the price is very volatile. But it is the way of the future, you know, yeah, a sure. digital currency. Sure, sure. But when 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 you look at it, for example, one thing that we thought was really interesting was how much of it is being mined, like 80% of it is being created, which involves some computer process basically, but it involves money in exchange for not much money. So it's profitable to do it, but not very profitable to mine Bitcoin. Um, 80% of that's being done in... China, Russia, Iran. Exactly. And you've now got many people coming out, even Peter Thiel came out and said that you know Bitcoin could be used as a financial weapon. So if you're investing in Bitcoin, you're taking a risk that you might not be aware you're taking, which is that the Chinese government, who owns probably a lot of... I shouldn't even say that because it's too much too speculative. It just feels so conspiratorial, <clears throat> It does feel it? so conspiratorial, it's, but it's... You got to talk about this shit. Let's just... Yeah, okay. Shoot but the breeze, buddy. It, Come it, on. It looks, it looks like those countries own a lot of Bitcoin. Right? It looks that way. It looks that way. And, and they've been people have been exchanging US dollars to get Bitcoins, which have been going up in value. So, you know, get back to basics. That's got to tell you that there's a transfer happening there. Of Bitcoin to US dollar. So US dollars coming out of the US, going into China. China's taking the US dollar and trading it with Bitcoin that goes back to the US. Yep. So that in your mind, so we can't check this, obviously, the nature of Bitcoin being on the blockchain, anonymous. We can't know any of this for sure, but it's an interesting thing to think of. So if that, that is actually taking place, then China's stockpiling US dollars. For the reason to do what? Who knows what they're going to do, but if they're if they're for it, you can be pretty sure that it's not 
positive for America. No, and it's most probably people, part of a strategy of some sort. Probably part of a strategy. And it, you know, if, if you're someone who thinks, oh, I'm going to put 10% of my net worth or 20% of my net worth or $5,000 that I could use for you know training myself in something or doing something productive, it's insane. It's insane. You know, you should be <laughs> learning is what you should be doing if you have a little bit of money, um, I think. Yeah. Sorry, Pomp. Even 1% oh. is too much for me. There's this one dude who's got like, I th- is he must be a billionaire or something at this point, but he's got 98% of his money in Bitcoin. 98% of his money. Yeah. Makes my palms sweat. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be sleeping very well at night, I don't think. I haven't got the stomach for that. But what do I always say? It's like, you know what? If it turns out to be a global yeah. digital currency and Bitcoin is number one on that list, then I guess we'll have to buy in 10 years from now at 200 grand or whatever it's at. Yeah. Sure. You know what? I'll, I'll take that risk over total loss of money that could be put elsewhere at this point in time, creating yeah. a, a definite return that you can calculate based on facts and reality. I think the reason why we're so you know, worried about the government's banning it is because I've lost money. We've lost money that one time with our insurance yeah, company in, weird, in, in New Zealand. Weird scenarios that yeah. you just can't see happening. Yeah. have never happened before. These black swans. Exactly. Strange things that can happen that you never would have considered. And the fact is it's common knowledge that, you know, Bitcoin is very likely being controlled by the Russians, Iranian and the Chinese. And if you think that <laughs> there's no chance or a small chance of, you know, going to zero, that would make it a zero. The banning of Bitcoin in America would make it a zero, you know. And it's kind of flown under the radar. Yeah. So you're thinking, oh, well, why wouldn't it have happened already? Well, you know what? It's not very popular until now. Now it's really getting popular. Yeah. I think, I feel like it's like a quarter the size of the gold market now. So the total value of all the Bitcoins is like a quarter of all the value of the gold. That's insane. You know, and it, it's something like that. What world um, are we living in? I don't know. I don't know. But if it's a store, if, it, if it's a store of value, and if it proves to be consistent over time, if, who knows? If this scenario plays out, and it does, you know, in the future, written in the history books, this is Chinese kind of strategy to be the global power in the world, or whatever. Yeah. Um, if America just turned around and accepted Bitcoin as like a digital currency. Wouldn't that just kind of checkmate the whole thing? Oh, they could they could turn yeah. around they could turn around start buying it, and then accumulate enough of it so they are also in control of the pricing. I mean, the U.S. government. In what world would they turn around and say, "Yeah, you know what? We're mm-hmm. gonna accept Bitcoin as like a a one for one trade. Like we're gonna back Bitcoin with the U.S. dollar or something like or that." Or tie it to could it, that or, happen? or or you know. Make it sort of um, so, legitimize it. Yeah, legitimize it in some way. Yeah. Like why they would do that would make no sense, but anything could happen. But that's the only case I could make for Bitcoin. Something like that happening. But as I said, prefer just to be a, a bystander, having a look from the side on that one. Yeah. You know, and uh, let's. There's real businesses out there. And there are real businesses out there that are compounding, you know, shareholders' money at twenty, thirty, forty percent a year doing real things in the real world that will definitely be around yeah. in five years' time. Producing so. something. You want to be... Your investment portfolio should be factored against businesses who are producing something in the real world. They're adding yeah. value. It's kind of a moat 
<laughs> you would say, <laughs> producing something in the real world. Like, it's kind of makes it likely that you're going to be around if you're producing like people I want. I know, that's not cool right now, all right? It's not cool with NFTs and, you know, cryptocurrencies and all this kind of thing. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I would say we've gone from being 100% opposed to it, we're a joke, to now saying, look, it could work out, but it's not for us because we don't have any knowledge about it. And that's where what we were saying in the first the first part of this you know, if you've just started investing and you think that the area you're going to have the biggest edge is in some weird digital currency, mm. like, <laughs> you know. I'd like to ask that person, how did you come to find out about Bitcoin? What what striked your interest, you know? Yeah. Did you hear it somewhere and you want to get in on a hot tip? That's not investing. No, investing is about being business-like, thinking about the future of the business, setting up some conservative assumptions, Deciding what price you want to pay based on that and then being patient for that price. And yeah. that's that's how it's done. Because you want to, you know, do you want to be the kind of race car driver that the way that you drive means that every second race you crash, but the other race you win, you mm. know? Mm. Do you want to be the kind of surfer that you, you know, every time you go surfing, half the times you get smashed against the rocks and the other half time you get barreled? Or do you want to be the kind of Gonna be the kind of surfer that gets great waves every time and never dies. Like, you know, yeah, I, I'll go for that I, one. I, you know, Thank you very much. Sign me up. And yeah, and as an investor, I wanna do things that when if you were if I was able to run my life back through a thousand times, it would result in success a thousand times out of a thousand. It shows maturity there. It shows a, a deeper level of thinking. That analogy, who said it about um, you know, if you're gonna set up a, a car race between like an expert car racer mm. and some novice um i'm probably gonna butcher it go I for it bobby go for it I no no I, I can't remember what they said but you know basically <laughs> the the expert is probably gonna have like more of a measured approach they're gonna yeah. be more sensible and more risk averse because they've had experience yeah and they're looking at it from a professional perspective whereas this novice coming in it's just gonna go gangbusters around the whole track and just like not think of risks, no. you know, and you know what? They might win mm. the race, but they could also die. Yeah. Whereas your expert, your professional, probably going to do well, but definitely not going to die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? It's like there's this balance that you have to think of. A lot of people aren't really having that balance in their approach to investing. No. But they haven't um, probably taken the time to understand how similar the Bitcoin phenomenon looks like every other bubble in all of history in terms of the price changes, in terms of mm. now, you know, your last few people are getting involved in it. Um, again, doesn't mean it's not true. You know, sometimes things are different, you know? Yeah. Pe people always say, you know, this time it's different and usually it's not, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is, yeah. And, that, and that's where as an investor, you can say, look, don't have to have an opinion on everything, you know? Any big, any opinions we've expressed on Bitcoin in this little podcast we've done, you know, are just opinions that, that we would never invest on them and we're just choosing to not partake at all. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure what we'll talk about in future, but, you know, hopefully it's just helpful to put our thoughts out there and they might strike a chord with someone else who's thinking similar things and, yeah, you know, reach out to us. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Give us your opinion put it forward in a polite way, in a concise way. 
because everyone's always everyone's trying to do the same thing mm. in investing. Well, everyone who's really serious about it is trying to invest in such a way with such a mindset and a strategy and with such security and conservatism that if you run and back our life through a thousand times, it would work out every way. Perhaps running through different lives, you know, in some situations we might get 12% a year and others 25%, but I don't want a hundred and zero. You know, I don't exactly. want zero as an option because if you want, if you're doing something serious way that you need to work out, that's going to mean you can have total freedom in your life. You want that to work out in a high probability way. Exactly. But also, uh, you know, we kind of see ourselves as like a sloth and a snail, you know, sometimes it's like this boring methodical approach, you yeah, know, yeah. Buffett Munger, stick to your principles. Yep. Dalio, you know, we've got all these amazing people that we can steal from, mm -hmm. right? But at the same point in time, we have our own uniqueness that we can bring to this. Yeah. And when we see an opportunity to do something, even if those people that we've learned so much from have never done it before, mm. if we see that opportunity, we need to jump onto it and take action, which is what we did pre-COVID, which... I don't know if we need to delve into our story too much. You know, I don't know if that's interesting to people. If it is, send us a message. We'd love to tell you all about it. But yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to kind of see your strengths, borrow from the experts. Those two kind of working hand in hand with each other. Yeah. It's um that's our approach. If you got this far, thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Now, if you'd like to become my 22nd or my 43rd follower on Twitter, links are in the show notes below. Mitch, anything else? Nothing to add.